Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Noel Kassler, and I guess this is the first time I have a Twitter writer on. (laughs) Uh, You do have a book, though, and you've been in a bunch of movies. Noel Kassler these days is mostly known for his Twitter account, but he's a stand-up comedian, and I guess you've not been able to do stand-up now for 10 months. This is true. Stand-up has been shut down, which, you know, increases the Twitter presence, but I do miss the clubs. I I was mainly based in New York City, and I'm working on a book, just to correct you. I don't have one out published yet, so most of my writing is on Twitter, and that's where most of the people keep begging for a book. Let's go into your background. What we're going to be talking about here, you've spent six years as a staffer at Celebrity Apprentice, three years with Ivanka Trump. A couple of questions just to see what we've got here. Proof of being on the Celebrity Apprentice, I guess, is because Mark Burnett, the producer, could have easily debunked you if you weren't, correct? Yeah, no, I was there. I mean, that's not really up for debate. I work in the talent department, so I worked in live television, which is a very specific thing. So I worked on everything from Super Bowl halftime shows to the Grammys to the Tony Awards. Kennedy Center Honors is where I began my career 25 years ago. So I handle talent when there's a live network broadcast where there's a lot at stake. So for NBC, I worked on the Celebrity Apprentice finales. So I did six seasons of it, the last three where I took care of Ivanka. But yeah, Mark knows me well. There's pictures of me and him. My side of things is they bring in freelancers to handle all the talent on shows. So we're not in the crew in the typical sense. We're like, you know, a grip or a gaffer. We come in to handle the celebrities that are going to be appearing on air and all the logistics behind the scenes. So my specialty is talent logistics. And that means all the movements, you know, that getting out of the car to the dressing room, dealing with their needs. And that's where you actually see a lot of things that you maybe aren't meant to see, you know, and the same people keep doing that over and over because if you're discreet about it, you'll work in that business. And I'd never revealed anything until I decided to break that NDA and speak out about Trump. I've worked with Michael Jackson. I've worked with Madonna. I've seen all kinds of things. The one standing rule in my business is you don't talk about the talent. And I never did until Trump was, you know, the candidate in 2015. And the things I knew about him, I knew he was a danger to this country. It wasn't just a political thing. I spoke out because the guy I know is one of the most dangerous human beings I've ever met. Let's go back then. First of all, how'd you get your start in that? And the second thing is, you worked with Trump before. Was your connection with with Trump or with the people who hired you? How did that work? It's the people who hired me. It was actually the same production coordinator that I started with on the Kennedy Center Honors in 1993. And that's a show for the performing arts. I'm sure your listeners are aware of it. It happens every year after Christmas. It's it's went up. 
people get a lifetime achievement award. They get a presidential medal of freedom in the arts and they are invited to the white house. And then they do a big gala show at the Kennedy center in, in Washington, DC. And it's, it's usually televised on CBS right after Christmas. So it's a very prestigious show. And I was a, a theater major. You know, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and, and studied acting when I was in my early 20s. So I was interested in the performing arts. And a friend of mine, I had, was from L.A. and worked in live television and said, hey, would you like to come and work on this show? You know, you'll get to see people. And I sort of came into that and was like, oh, my God, there's this a whole other world behind the scenes, you know. And actually, the first thing they asked me to do they said, hold this French horn. We need to do some camera blocking. And they sent me out to stand on a riser in the opera house at the Kennedy Center. And I'm holding this French horn. I'm like 22 years old. And all of a sudden, Aretha Franklin comes out and Billy Preston, you know, and Aretha gives this incredible performance, you know, and, and then the director said, you know, can you try it once more with feeling, so to speak? And I saw Aretha kind of take umbrage to that and then give a performance that was like if she had been reaching down into the heavens and just taking lightning bolts and throwing them at people. And everybody in the room was, you know, had tears in their eyes. And I just thought like, this is amazing. You know, that like, there's only the people that are working on this show are going to see that because no matter how great it is tonight, it's not going to be this sort of intimate behind the scenes thing that I just witnessed. And I was hooked, so to speak. And I, I, I was in New York a couple of years later and started getting hired on the Tony Awards and the MTV VMAs. And that's where I got the gig um, working on the Miss Teen U or was Miss Teen USA and Miss Universe pageant. They're both the same thing. And they were directed by the same guy who directs the Oscars now. You know, that's the other thing is it's a very small world. So even if there's a cheesy show like a beauty pageant or a celebrity apprentice, it's the same people behind the scenes that are bringing you the Tony Awards because it is such a specific niche in live TV. And I realized that as, at a young age, I realized this is a cool gig. You know, I get to be around the arts and I get to uh, see things I wouldn't otherwise see, and I get to get paid for it. So let's move on to the 90s and your first encounter with Donald Trump. Uh, at that point, those of us from New York knew about Trump. He was kind of, to coin a word, a sphincter. Everybody <laughs> knew that, right? Everyone knew that. He was a celebrity mostly known for being a celebrity. He yeah. was famous for being famous. And, of course, he palled around at Studio 54, and nobody really cared that much except when he put up buildings that blocked views and sift people. A friend of mine had some dealings with George Steinbrenner, and Steinbrenner had dealings with Trump, and the actual word for sphincter came up more than once. That's funny. So how did you meet Trump and what was your first reaction to him? This is long before he became, yeah, you know, the other person, right? And you just reminded me of remember when he tore down the Bonwit Teller building and they had those beautiful like freezes that were promised to the Met, and he had a bunch of laborers smash them in the middle of the night. You know, that was uh, I don't know if you remember that, but that was when he was building Trump Tower. So he was that kind of New Yorker. And I grew up in New York in the 80s in Westchester outside of the city. So I always knew Trump as the sort of cartoon character, you know, like Crazy Eddie. You know, he was like a cross between, he was like a racist Crazy Eddie to me because I remember the Central Park Five and all that kind of stuff. 
So when I first saw him, I had these memories that most New Yorkers have of him, you know, somebody who was sort of like never accepted by Upper East Side, you know, New York society, but was going to kind of will his way into the, into the stratums anyway, you know, so it was all the gold plated stuff and the, the model wives. And, you know, I, I remember his divorce from Ivana and the Marla Maples and all the tabloid stuff. So when I first saw him, was working at Miss Teen Universe or Miss Miss Universe. And that's when he came out and he would line up the contestants. I don't know if you've seen me speak about that. It, it's gone viral in my comedy, but he would line up all the contestants. And the first year he did this, if you're doing a live television show, it's very expensive, right? You have union labor. The Directors Guild of America is all the cameramen and stuff. So you got guys that are getting paid a fortune to be on set and ready to shoot. So Trump came out, lined up all the girls and started inspecting them. He was walking up and down the line and like making little notes. He stuck his fingers in their teeth and was like checking to see which one had teeth that he liked. He was doing all these crazy things. This is all true, you know, and cameramen were going home and like telling their wives about it. Like you won't believe what a pig this guy is in real life. You know, just crazy, like abusing his power. But anyway, he came out and did that and cost an hour of production time, right? He cost that production, you know, seventy-five, dollars $100,000 because nobody could get anything done. So you think that people would be like, this is crazy. You know, we can't allow this to exist. That's not what happened. The next year when people came to work, they had written it into the production schedule. Trump inspects contestants. That's what Trump does. And that was my first lesson was like, wow, he got away with being the biggest pig you could be and co totally abusing his power. But because he owns the pageant, because it's on network TV and it's making money for people, they're going to let him do what he wants to do. That's Trump being Trump. And on those same shows, he would come into the, the TV truck. Now, I'm a guy who's at this point, I'm a PA. So I'm running around getting water for people and, you know, dealing with dressing rooms. But I would hear the, the ADs and the directors talk about him and be like, can you believe he came into the truck? And he'd come into the TV truck. You know, there's a remote trailer, basically, where they do all the editing and, and tell everybody, you know, what camera to go to and such. He would come into the truck and point at the monitors and say, get a close up on her. And he'd, you know, say T-I-T-S and stuff. You know, he'd use gross slurs and stuff, racial slurs. He had no filter even back then but he got away with it. The other big memory I have from him in the 90s, besides that lesson, and I mentioned that because your listeners, that's what we've seen as president. You know, he does these outrageous things and you think he's never going to get away with this, but he does. It, people come to accept it. And they're like, that's just Trump being Trump. You know, he, was, he had to be flown off of an island. He was in Trinidad and attacked one of the contestants and they flew him off the island. You know, this is long before he became you know, celebrity apprentice and the apprentice. So he was able to exist in an industry which allowed somebody like that to exist because there was money to be made. And that's shameful all around. And I guess I play a part in that. I wasn't a producer. I'm not making excuses for myself. That was just kind of Hollywood at the time in the 90s. The other big memory was I was working on a VMAs. This is all well before The Apprentice. So this would have this would have been probably 98. And I remember he brought... Ivanka as his date. She probably was around 16 or 15. He brought her as his date, but we were doing an MTV VMAs at Radio City. 
and we had 51st street blocked 50th street actually blocked off for like a red carpet, you know, between sixth, sixth Avenue and fifth. And he gets out of his limo and I'm out there on the street on the carpet and I'm standing next to an NYPD officer and he gets out and I'm like, Hey, look, it's Donald Trump. Like we're laughing, you know? And he's like, yeah, I used to work on his security detail. That guy's the biggest such and such hound in the city. And he used a, a, you know, a P word, you know, (laughs) hound as the city. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I was on his detail. He'd be out every night in nightclubs. He's getting high. He's hitting on models. That guy's a crazy, like just a crazy partier, you know? And this guy, and he didn't mean like crazy partier, like fun, good times. He just meant like, you won't believe like what this guy gets up to at night. And that was another part of Trump is that he always had NYPD security around him. You know, that's why he's gotten away with all he's gotten away with. It was no secret who he was, but he was able to become who he was and continue to be who he was because he would have big cops. You know, Keith Schiller, he brought him to DC. That's an ex-NYPD rammer. You know, his job was busting down doors. So he'd have like this intimidating footprint that was basically like, I can do whatever I want. He's carried that attitude into the White House. We're all seeing the results of that now. During the 90s, of course, there were all kinds of stories about people like Harvey Weinstein or Michael Jackson, and everyone shrugged them off. It was only years later that the bill eventually came due on all of them, except Donald Trump. Yes. And I've worked with both of those guys too, you know, and in full disclosure, I've known Bob Weinstein for a long time, and uh, I've worked with Harvey on a lot of shows, and that was no secret. You know, what Harvey was up to was no secret. I worked with Michael Jackson, too. I stopped being his escort because he freaked me out too much. <laughs> I didn't see what he was later accused of or accused of with the little boys, but I got a very weird vibe from him. And the last time I worked with him was in 2001 at the VMAs. And I actually quit a job that I was supposed to do a couple days later, which was a Jackson family reunion at Madison Square Garden. And the person who had hired me was also on the VMAs. And he was being such a weirdo on that show. He had Yuri Geller with him and he made me lock down the hallways to like bring him to stage. So you couldn't let you two and all these other bands pass by when Michael was walking. And, uh, (laughs) He went out and did this bizarre thing where like started to accept an award that we weren't giving him. You know, he was just like, and I couldn't even look at the guy. At that point, he'd covered his face with a mask and he'd had all this plastic surgery. But I just, and he was also very tall, which most people don't get about Michael Jackson. When you meet him in person, he was very, it was weird. He was like tall. So he wasn't so, uh, feet isn't the right word, but if he wasn't, if he didn't have this childish aura, he would have been like a normal kind of big guy which was just a weird juxtaposition with his voice. Anyway, I quit a gig working with him and that basically saved me from 9-11 because our shoot dates were the 9th and 10th of September, 2001. And I lived downtown, but luckily I wasn't home Tuesday morning because I'd quit this Michael Jackson family gig. And if if you know anything about that gig, that's where he had Marlon Brando and um, Liza Minnelli and all these people on the show. And we had no shooting script. So it was just a whole train wreck. And the audience ended up throwing stuff on stage and booing because it just took all night and they didn't really have a performance. But here's just an interesting aside. The next morning, November, you know, September 11th happened. All these flights are shut down in the country. So Michael, Marlon and Liza needed to get back into L.A. And they apparently rented a car 
like Wednesday morning, they rented a car and drove across the country. And if you can just imagine being a guy at a rest stop in Kansas somewhere, you know, filling up with gas and, you know, all of a sudden this car pulls up and it's got, you know, Marlon Brando and Michael Jackson behind the wheel. I was just thinking while you were saying that, what a great idea for a play or, or a film, those three. I think there is an independent, I did John Fugelsang's show on Sirius XM once, I don't know if you know him, and, and I confirm, he's like, you're confirming it's real. And apparently there was either a script or an independent film made about that journey, because that in and of itself is like a fascinating, fascinating thing to think about. Noel Kassler, getting to Celebrity Apprentice, a couple of quick questions, because I'm going to jump the gun, and then we're going to go into the story of how this terrible person, this clown, suddenly became a famous businessman, which is where you come in and what you saw. But a couple of quick questions. In 2015 and 16, you went to the Clinton campaign with some of these stories. What was their response? They actually approached me. I worked on both of Barack Obama's, President Obama's inaugurations. And uh, I had a friend who had worked on the Obama inaugurations who was then on the you know, on the Clinton campaign, the Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign. So I was doing the New Yorker Festival in New York. I remember it vividly. I was with Springsteen that day. We were doing a big book talk. And I got a, a message from her and she said, I know you've been speaking out on, on Facebook and stuff, which many people who had worked on the show had been doing. People started like trading these anecdotes and being like, can you believe this guy's the Republican nominee? Remember that time he did this? And remember that time he did that? Because everybody has these stories, right? Mark Burnett got wind of this, that people were starting to speak out and threatened to sue anybody who broke their NDA because everybody had an NDA because Trump wasn't this billionaire guy. When they shot the first season of Apprentice, where I wasn't there, but my friends were the production cast. I came in when it was Celebrity Apprentice because I deal with celebrity talent. But when my friends were just doing the regular show, they showed up to shoot the first season and the, the furniture in Trump's office was so threadbare that they were like, nobody's going to believe this guy's a billionaire. So they actually had to go out and rent furniture to make him look wealthier. And people don't realize that. They think he ran this big multinational corporation. It was a mom and pop shop. You know, it's a real estate company with like 20 employees, three of which are like his kids, you know? So it's like this one floor in Trump Tower with this ratty furniture and Mark Burnett and his team go in there and they have to figure out like, how do we sell this guy as a billionaire? You know, and that's what they did through editing, you know, through these power shots. Reality was Trump can barely read. He's severely dyslexic, as you can see now when he's president. He's always reading with his finger and he stumbles over three syllable words. So he was anything but like, you know, a with it kind of businessman who was in control. He, he would barely show up for the tapings. They would have to edit stuff together. They would cancel more days than not. He never picked the person who was the winner. They would tell him who to pick when he showed up for the finales. So it really was an illusion. And, you know, Mark Burnett went to Russia first. He went to Putin and wanted to do a reality show on the Mir space station and, 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 and some funding that I got from an oligarch. And they said, no, the guy you want to do the show on is Donald Trump back in New York City. And I always thought that was very interesting. And that's a fact. You can look it up. It's in the New Yorker. There was a great piece on, on the... Producers of The Apprentice. So 
they wanted to go to Russia and they were told by the Russians to go to New York City. So then they create this image of this successful American businessman that, by the way, is also fitting in with the archetype of like your Fox viewer, you know, your NASCAR viewer, the vein of American media that Rupert Murdoch had already successfully been exploiting. Mark Burnett was able to sort of create a superhero in that same mold and sell him to middle America. You know, and that's how he, he had the power to run for president. Because like you said at the top of the show, New Yorkers knew about him. We knew he was a joke. We saw Atlantic City. We knew he anything he touched went bankrupt. <laughs> you know, he was not this successful guy. Trump Tower is not a place where people like aspired to live. It's not a dump, but it's not, you know, it's not a, a co-op on, on Park Avenue. Right. So he wasn't what he was presented to be. It was a, a work of pure fiction. My feeling in 2016 was that anybody who has a hotel in Atlantic City has to be affiliated with the mob. A friend of mine who works in Manhattan real estate also told me that it's impossible to be legal and be successful if you're a real estate developer in New York. Those two facts did not come together until after he was elected. And your story, going back to you, why didn't the Clinton campaign pick up on any of this? I don't know. I mean, I told them, and I, I know that you know I have the email chain of the pe people I spoke with, and they believed everything I said. Their focus was mainly on the sexual assaults, you know, and the sexual harassment that I saw him do. I told them about the Adderall abuse and stuff, and they put me in touch with People Magazine. You know, their play was like, we're going to put you in touch with People. I gave an interview to People Magazine. They told me they were going to run it as a cover story because one of their authors had been assaulted by him at Mar-a-Lago in a bedroom. That's all documented. You know, she, she's come out with that. So they were going to run uh, a cover story on Trump's history of, 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 you know, sexual harassment slash sexual assault. And the week it was supposed to come out, they came out with a feature on Nancy O'Dell's divorce, you know, the host of Entertainment Tonight. So my feeling was always that there was some sort of catch and kill involved. You know, I don't know if it was Michael Cohen or somebody, but some pressure was put on People Magazine. They didn't run the story. The other part of that is the, the feeling I got from Hillary's campaign right around the time we spoke, the Access Hollywood tapes came out. So I think they felt, as many of us did, that like, this is it. He's done now anyway. You know, <laughs> like, what more do we even know or do we even have to do rather that he's saying it himself? Everyone knows the Access Hollywood tapes and what he said about women and how he likes to grab them. So I felt like they probably thought that was enough. They didn't need to push harder. And they also didn't see the Comey thing coming, as you remember, like a week before when sure. Comey said there was another investigation. So that hadn't happened yet. And I think I'll put it another way. I got a big sense of confidence from Hillary's campaign, you know, and my friends were all doing, you know, the night of the election, she had this big thing planned at the, at Jacob Javits in New York city. And Lady Gaga was there, Katy Perry, like they were going to do this big celebration as we as we all know, the New York Times exit polls and stuff, there was no way Trump was going to win. <laughs> so my info landed in that environment, so to speak, you know, in an overly confident environment. So they 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 and and again they reached out to me, and I gladly told them what I knew. And then he won. And then I left my industry and became a stand-up comedian to to spread the word further and to process it. 
you know, almost as an artist to say, look, you guys need to know who this guy is. Now that he's president, this is what he did. The stories that appeared within a year from places like the Atlantic and New Republic, which documented the um, the money laundering through the mob, documented Deutsche Bank and all of that, all of that was kind of set aside because the assumption was simply that Hillary was going to win. Exactly. You know, the New York Times, they were sort of addicted to doing the, you know, the stories on Hillary's emails and all this kind of stuff. But yes, they knew or thought Hillary was going to win based on their polling. And the other thing is this stuff wasn't a secret. You know, James Zirin wrote a great book about it called Plaintiff in Chief that came out a couple years ago. And he goes back. He was a former SDNY prosecutor. And he examined like the 4,000 lawsuits that Trump had been involved in, you know, since the early 70s when he was being sued by the Department of Justice for racial discrimination and housing and stuff. And there's a great story in there, which is factually based up. You mentioned like you can't build in New York City without being mob related. So the summer that Trump Tower was completed was the summer of 1982. There was a Teamster strike in New York City. Teamsters are the ones that drive the cement trucks. You know, Trump famously built the, you know, the building out of out of cement and concrete and cheaper materials. His cement wasn't moving, right? He he's he's he he can't get his 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 stuff poured because nothing's moving in New York City. So he makes a deal with the Teamster head, the president of the Teamsters union, that he'll give a free penthouse condo away to his mistress, the Teamsters mistress, even though she has no visible means of income if, if the concrete flows. You know, and the next morning the concrete started flowing, which also, you know, Fat Tony Salerno was involved in. So that's a pure mob thing. And James goes into it in, in, in great detail. I would recommend that. But so, yes, you had to play ball with the mob. Trump had been doing that forever. He did it in Atlantic City. And the other thing I like to point, I like to make about him is that Trump, you know, he'd build these things in Atlantic City and then he would like stiff the guy who put in the carpeting. You know, he, he'd stiff the tradesmen that put in the brass railing in the Taj Mahal, right? You don't do that in South Jersey unless you're basically untouchable. Well, I want to get back to Noel Kassler and your own dealings, what you saw, because this is all very significant. The difference between Donald Trump, the fictional character created by Mark Burnett, and the actual individual and the conflation of the two into this president. Among the things you have said, discussing people's personal issues, it's kind of tacky. And some people say we shouldn't do this. And others say at the same time, well, Donald Trump is such a hypocrite anyway. He's several inches shorter than he claims to be, correct? Yeah, he wears lifts, three inch lifts in his shoes. He's probably around six foot and he tries to say he's six, three and I'm somebody who's five, seven, you know, I'd take the six foot, you know, to, <laughs> to have to be six, three when you're clearly not. So yeah, he would wear lifts in his shoes. He wore a girdle cause he's very overweight. And there's the other thing I think you're getting at, you know, he, he was incontinent. So he wore depends adult diapers. And I point that out not to mock him though. That's the way it comes across on Twitter. He does that because he's been addicted to stimulants, you know, since the 80s. So if you're using stimulants all the time, you become incontinent because it, it works as a diuretic in your bowels. And he also eats cheese, you know, not hamburgers and meatloaf. He only eats meat and stuff. So his colon is shot. And that would literally be a production issue. 
in shooting this show. And I pointed out because it is our business when he's president of the United States, because he hasn't been forthcoming. You say it became a production issue. I mean, how did you work around it? He would soil himself and then you'd have to stop shooting and they would bring him off set and change him. And all of the contestants knew this? Not all the contestants, because the te- contestants aren't, weren't always there when they're doing boardroom shots and stuff. You know, it never happened like live on the air when they're doing a, you know, a finale. It happened when he had to read cue cards. He doesn't like to read. He gets really freaked out. So if he'd see a three-syllable word like arbitrage is the example I remember most vividly, you know, he started screaming that the script department was trying to set him up because he can't see or pronounce the word. So he's just doing a rehearsal, sees something he doesn't like, flies into a rage, becomes very flatulent and and evacuates his bowels and and you cannot continue to shoot after that. So yes, crew and some cast members, but it wasn't like he wasn't doing it, you know, in front of everybody. And the Adderall addiction, snorting Adderall? Yeah, that's no secret. I mean, that he was doing that. He does it as president. You can see clips of it flying out of his nose. And again, I spoke about that because somebody in active addiction is the last person you want making decisions for the nation, you know, because an, an active addict is somebody who's only thinking about themselves. And if you look at his tweets, it's all self-centered fear and resentment, all these issues that you deal with if you're an addict. And he uses it, when I saw him use it, he would use it because he couldn't read and it made him feel in control. That's why if you see him giving a speech, he's sniffing all the time. Or in the debates with Hillary, he was sniffing all the time. Or in the first debate with Joe Biden, he does it when he has to speak publicly. It makes it feel like his brain is working better. And he's been doing that, you know, the anecdotes of him doing that, not just what I saw. I got friends who, you know, been doing, done cocaine with him and, and he would bring, I don't want to get too into it here, but, you know, he would have unsavory types come to the after parties. Let's just put it that way. And it was clear what they were there for. And, and you know, it would be on his nose. Like you would have to send hair and makeup in to clean it up. And, and your viewers can go look up these clips as president. You know, they're all out there. The first thing he did when he was elected president, because he was shocked. He didn't think he was going to win the thing ever. You know, and either that's a whole nother show. If you want to get into how he won, you know, we, we know there was interference, but he was very shocked that night. One of the first things he did was he sent Keith Schiller, who's his body man, his lawyer, Alan Garten, and another guy to his doctor's office, which is this guy, Harold Bornstein on the Upper East Side, who's basically a doctor feel good. You know, he's been sued for over, over prescribing opioids and women have died all over the Upper East Side that had this guy as a doctor. You know, he's a guy who wrote scripts and your viewers can look this up too. You look at the guy's picture and you can, you can tell what business he's in, but he was Trump's main physician since the early eighties. He's a gastroenterologist. So as one of the first actions Trump took was sending his bodyguards up there in the morning, they pushed the doctor aside and stole all his medical records and walked out of there. And this doctor's on the record, you know, he told the New York times it happened. So he did that not to hide his high cholesterol numbers. Do you follow what I'm saying? He did that so you wouldn't see who he was and what his, his, his you know, drug use was, his prescription drug use. You know? And that's why he got the same guys, Ronnie Jackson. You know, when he got to the White House, Ronnie Jackson was the guy who was like, he'd live to be 200 if he just you know, ate less steak and stuff. So he gets these people and he corrupts them. Do you think he actually had COVID? 
That is a great question. In the beginning, I did. Now, I don't really think. Now, it, it seems so sketchy. And Sean Connolly was the third in line of those doctors willing to you know, say anything on his behalf. So the way they handled that, I don't know that he did. He could have gone there for something else. You know, you know, he had that mysterious visit in November the previous year to Walter Reed where he just comes running out the side door, you know, of the White House and they put him in the SUV and drove him up to Walter Reed. So it very well could have been connected to an other, another health issue that they dealt with, you know, but who knows? We'll never know. We don't have any transparency. What about Tom Joseph, who thinks that there's dementia here? I don't buy that, you know? I know people like like that site. That guy blocked me a long time ago for some reason, you know, because people kept adding me like, you need to check this guy out. And I had nothing bad to say about him. I just said, he doesn't have dementia. And I'll tell you why. If you listen to the tapes, listen, Lev Parnas, I know, listen to Lev Parnas's tape, you know, that he released when they were talking about Marie, is it Maria Branovich that, you know, the-, the right. When he goes, take her out. What's she doing? Take her out right now. Or listen to the Woodward tapes. I just listened to him again last night on CNN. If you listen to those tapes, he knows what he's doing. You know, he, he you, you hear him off the record and he's succinct, you know, and he's speaking clearly. You know, Tom Joseph has never met Trump. People who haven't been around him don't know how messed up he is physically and how much drugs he uses. So it's easy to sort of superimpose you know, a diagnosis of dementia on him. He knows what he's doing. He, I'm not saying his brain is healthy. You know, he hasn't fed it anything but sugar and fat and stimulants for 40 years. But, you know, his posture and all that stuff, that's all from like, that's from the girdle and the lifts, you know, his, his weak right hand. He might have had a stroke or something like that, but he doesn't have dementia. And I'll say one more thing. I don't trust that dementia talk because I almost felt in the beginning like this is a plant to give him an out. You know, when he goes to trial, for hopefully for whatever he's done, he could be like, well, I just had dementia. I didn't even know what he was doing. So long way to answer, no, he doesn't have dementia. What got me is after he lost the election to Biden and he began asking for money and saying he was going to fight, and then he takes all the money and keeps it for himself, I'm thinking, this guy is just grifting. Yes. It's all grift. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it's 200 million. You know, he's raised 200 million. And it's not only that, it's in some political action committee where it's like a leadership pack, which means he doesn't have to disclose how he spends it. It doesn't, he can use it for anything he wants. And I know what he's using it for, you know, it's going right in his bank account. So it's not just like we're raising money to have a war chest for our next campaign. They're literally giving him money that he's going to spend on himself. I want to go back a second. Jeff Zucker was head of NBC when Apprentice took off. And the speculation that Zucker and Burnett kind of kept things under wraps during the 2016 campaign, as well as afterward, by which point Zucker was at CNN because they, for some reason, didn't want to upset the apple cart. That's 100% true. I mean, Jeff Zucker knows more about Trump than I do. You know, you, you think you're the head of the NBC Entertainment and you don't know that the guy, you know, who's on one of your TV shows is sexually harassing contestants. You know, that he's erratic, that he's using drugs. You know all about that. Jeff Zucker knows exactly who Trump is. And Jeff's gone to Trump fundraisers in the Hamptons. You know, he supports him. That tax break 
covered up a lot of evils, right? And it's also, I tell people this, it's like WrestleMania. CNN kind of seems like they're against Trump and Anderson. You know, I used to work on CNN Heroes, full disclosure. And, and yes, Anderson Cooper and Chris Cuomo and those guys are anti-Trump. But it's like when you have a wrestling thing, you know, you have your good guy and your bad guy. You know, and they're fighting each other. But the dude who owns the organization is the one who's really making the money, you know. And Jeff was making a fortune off of Trump and has every day since. And now he's on the outs. You know, now it's kind of his world has crashed down on him and he's apparently leaving CNN. And and so Jeff knows all about who Trump was. Mark Burnett certainly knew. Mark has all these tapes. I mean, Trump used the N-word. I've heard him use it. Many other people have used it. Not just using the N-word, but like vile anti-immigrant kind of, of, of tropes that would come out of his mouth. And there's hours of Trump doing that, you know, uh, over the course of the 14 years or whatever that that show ran, 12 years. Mark will never let those tapes see the light of day. Trump follows like 50 people on Twitter. Two of them are Mark and his wife, Roma Downey. So Mark has a biggest stake as anybody in Trump. And he's also, you know, this sort of... Christian fundamentalist. I don't know exactly what you call it. And he's also a powerful man in Hollywood. You know, he owns The Voice on NBC. He owns um, Survivor, uh, Shark Tank, all these very profitable companies. And that, to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, that's why my colleagues didn't speak out. You know, because I'm not the only one who saw this stuff. And I begged my friends, you know, I've talked, Carl Bernstein's a friend of mine. I've told Carl all about this stuff. And we needed other you know, I have one other guy who corroborated it, who did shows on the, uh, you know, who did transportation on these shows, but you need like three people to really break the story. So I would try to get in 16 and later, I'd get my colleagues like, Hey, you know, just break the NDA and, and talk, tell, tell what you saw, you know, tell me that story you told me. Cause there's things that other people saw that are worse than what I saw. And they'd be like, no, I can't. You know, I got a kid in college. I got a house. You know, I'm in the DGA. I'll never work again. I'll never work in Hollywood again because it's bringing so much baggage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you have that sort of baggage, you're not going to work again. Even if you think, well, Hollywood's liberal and they don't like Trump, it's the damage. You know, it's the negativity of being like, oh, you're the one who spoke out. I don't need that that trouble on the show. Because think about it. The talent wants to know that what they do is not, you know, that it's, they're sort of like that there's some discretion involved in television production, you know, and once you break that golden rule, you've broken it. And also Mark Burnett can sue you. So he could sue you and take everything you have as well. So it's, it's Burnett and not, not the Trump organization itself, which is stopping this. Right. It's Burnett. In, in my case, it's Burnett. And then the case of the television and the Trump tapes not being released, it's a hundred percent Burnett. Trump has his own NDAs and that's what he has his ex-wives sign. That's what he's had people who work in the White House now sign. <laughs> you know, he's having people who work for us sign NDAs that they can't. Well, ever. they're going to ignore them. Well, well, we'll see. His organization is probably going to be gone yeah. within two years from Letitia James. So Let's, at this point. Hmm, I hope what? so. I hope you're right. But Burnett goes on and on. How come you're ignored? Is it because they're afraid if they actually come after you, you're going to get on the witness stand? Yeah. And it's also like, what do they have in coming after me? I don't really have much. You know, it's easier to say that guy's a comedian. What does he know? You know, if if they acknowledge me, they sort of give me more 
credibility. You know, there's really nothing in it for them to acknowledge me. And this stuff is not a secret. So I think that they know, like, if I'm willing to say this, somebody else is going to be willing to back it up. And if it comes to a court of law, that is what will happen because then I can subpoena people, you know. So I think there's that reason. And I think Mark's a billionaire. What does he need? What has he got from that I'm, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have anything to take. And Trump's already president. Right. Unless he wants to break you as, as a warning, but he doesn't have to. Right. He doesn't. And the main, cause the mainstream media kind of plays along. It's not like I'm on Rachel Maddow. It's not like I've been invited on there to discuss this stuff. You know, everyone knows it and they talk about it behind the scenes, the drug stuff that I revealed the Adderall, you know, that's, that's a punchline on SNL now, you know, stand up late night comedians have been talking about that stuff for the two years since it broke two years ago in, in December. December 8th in 2018. So it's in the public vernacular, but it's not in the official vernacular. And it's also something that as a country, we don't really want to talk about those things, you know? And if you know anything about addiction, that's an interesting point because addiction thrives in denial. So does sexual predation. You know, it's an ugly topic and we'd rather not confront it. Uh, you know, the drugs are one thing and, the, and they they point to like the horrible decisions he's made as a leader. But the thing that I think he always should have been held accountable for was the sexual predation. You know, you don't have 200 women come out and say that they've had, you know, some sort of sexual assault or harassment from you and 26 on the record without it being true. And the guy I saw, you know, I asked everybody, we didn't know about that 13 year old girl that he allegedly, you know, uh, assaulted in Jeffrey Epstein's house until that story broke and he was president. After it broke, I, I, I sort of did an informal uh, poll of all the people I knew who knew him well. And I said, do you think he did it? Absolutely was, was the reply. Absolutely. Because he is that way. If you know him in person, he's very dark and very angry. And his anger is basically aimed at women. If you, if you watch his press conferences, he always freaks out if a woman asks him a question. He'll be like, that's a nasty question. Like you can see the flash of anger in his eyes when it comes to, to women. So that's the kind of thing that, that should have gotten more attention that I, I'm sort of ashamed that the mainstream media didn't really pick up on, you know, the, the using the N word that was all well-known, you know, stuff. And, and they picked up on that when Mary Trump came out with a book and, you know, Simon and Schuster stood to make a million dollars, you know, all of a sudden Rachel Maddow had her on to interview and, and Larry O'Donnell, Lawrence O'Donnell breathlessly talked about the N word being used. Well, you know what? Black contestants said he used it 10 years ago. Kwame Jackson said he used it. Holly Robinson Pete has confirmed he used it. I gave the same anecdote. You know, I heard him use it in relation to Holly Robinson Pete. But none of those people were deemed worthy to sort of make the case on it at a corporate level. You know, but when somebody with the last name Mary Trump had a big book to sell, and I'm not knocking Mary, I'm just saying when it sort of was whitewashed, to use a, a maybe right. a pun, <laughs> enough to become like, okay, we'll give you this. You know, we'll give you that he might have used the N-word around the Thanksgiving table. But did he assault somebody? We're not going there. When the whole Mueller thing was coming down and MSNBC was fixated on Mueller, I kept thinking by fixating on Mueller, they were ignoring all of the other horrible things that his administration was doing other than putting kids in cages. This thing stretches out 
we have no idea the depth of depravity that has gone on for four years. Well said, Richard. I mean, we haven't even we haven't even begun to glimpse it. We've seen the big ticket items, so to speak. Imagine what all these cabinet secretaries have been doing on the on the on the sly. You know, look at what he's doing right now, auctioning off you know the Arctic wilderness to, to oil companies, and, and that may be irreversible. So imagine imagine what Jared Kushner has on that secret server that he set up in the White House. And imagine how many documents are being shredded, you know, as we speak. Tell us a little about what your contacts were with Ivanka and with Jared Kushner, and feel free to say whatever you want. <laughs> well, I knew them when they were dating. You know, when I first saw him was when I was working on Celebrity Apprentice and she brought him around and then they broke up and I think they got married around like maybe 2009 or 2010, they had broken up and Wendy Dang Murdoch put them back together. Wendy Dang Murdoch, you know, Putin's reputed ex-girlfriend, ex-wife of, 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 you know, Rupert Murdoch said, no, you guys are getting married. You're not breaking up, you're getting married. So they got back together. She was who I dealt with. The last three years of the show, she, she was the star behind the scenes. Ivanka runs the Trump organization. Most people think it's the father. It's not. I tell people this. Trump wants to get high. He wants music to play when he walks in the room and he wants to hit on women. You know, he's like a narcissistic predator that has his needs met in the moment. He doesn't see the long game. He's not even that interested in money. He's lost more money than most people will ever make. You know, he he blew a $700 million inheritance before Celebrity Apprentice, you know, that he got after bankrupting the casinos. You know, so if money was really his thing, he's had plenty of opportunities to just kind of sit on a big pile of cash. He needs to destroy things. You know, he needs to feed his, his ego in these very visceral ways. So he wants to be sort of like the man in the room that all the women are looking at and all the men fear. And that's an easy thing to manipulate, as we saw when he went to Saudi Arabia. You know, they gave him an orb and a sword dance and all of a sudden, you know, they were our best friends. You know, they put his picture up on the side of a building and he couldn't stop talking about it. Ivanka and Jared run it behind the scenes. They see the long game. You know, that's why Jared's over in the Middle East sewing up all these contracts. You know, that's why he got the the debt that he incurred at Triple Six Fifth Avenue paid off, you know, by gutter. Was it gutter or UAE? Somebody he shook down, right? You know, and right. got his debt paid off. And he went over there last week and God knows what he was doing. So what I saw of them was like they were playing the long game. And here's an example, like even on the show. I used to have to show up maybe a few hours before the talent got there. And when I switched to Ivanka, our final home was we shot it at the Museum of Natural History on the Upper West Side of New York. They said, you got to show up, you know, five hours early to meet Ivanka's trailer. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they're like, we insisted, she insisted that we get her a trailer. Nobody got a trailer on this show. They'd be in pipe and drape dressing rooms, you know, backstage in a hallway or something. But she had this big, huge trailer and I had to show up early to meet her glam squad of like five people, you know? And at this point, you didn't know anybody was becoming president or running for that. And I was just mad, like, you kidding me? Like, I got to stand in an underground parking lot at noon, you know, for somebody who's not even showing up till seven at night. But that's what I had to do because she was calling the shots and I saw her, you know, manipulate her father. I'll give your listeners another example. You know that soft, breathy, sibilant S voice that she uses? 
That's yeah. not her real speaking voice. Her real speaking voice is like an octave lower. She sounds like a kid from Queens. You know, she curses like a sailor, but when she gets around him and now in front of the camera, you know, in her position with the White House, she's like got this breathy kind of porn star almost voice, you know, and I saw her both laugh at her father with Jared because they would laugh at the fact that he couldn't read and stuff. And then I would see her work it with him, you know, when, when she needed to sort of manipulate him to get through a scene. And, and, and she does the same thing in her role as first daughter or whatever you call it. If you watched, you know, when he did that horrible thing where he posed with the Bible in Lafayette Square this summer, you know, after they tear gassed the, per, you know, the protesters, it was Ivanka who carried the Bible in her little Birkin bag over to the church, you know? So that's the kind of thing that Ivanka does. It's kind of like, here, you're, you're tanking in the poll numbers right now. Everyone knows you went into the bunker Friday night. You're going to have to do something to sort of like assuage the, the the far right and the Christian fundamentalists. I know. Why don't we go across the street and you can pose with a with a Bible? Never mind if we have to, you know, tear gas a bunch of peaceful protesters. It's the ruthlessness that exists that comes from Jared and Ivanka. And Jared is like, he's like Damien from The Omen. You know, the, he is a soulless, creepy creepy guy. And when I knew him, he was a good looking dude. He had dimples, you know, he was a pretty good looking guy. If you look at him now, he doesn't look healthy. Did he have lift? Facelift? I think he, they both Botox? Botox. Yeah, they both Botox. Now, what about the story that he's actually gay? Is that, is there any truth to yeah, that Yeah, I believe he is. And that's not, uh, there's nothing wrong with being gay. You know, I'm a proud son of a lesbian mother. You know, I, I'd, she'd bring me out to the San Francisco area, you know, the Castro district in the late 70s. You know, the, the strength and love that I got from, from gay men in my life helped make me who I am. You know, and I saw it in a time where you, you still had to hide it, you know, or you had to fight to have a disease recognized, you know, because there's so much homophobia. So there's nothing wrong with being gay, obviously. I don't need to tell your viewers that. Or me, or actually. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, so, you know, so I am always hesitant to talk about that side of it because I don't want people to infer that. You know, if you make anything, a statement like that, when I'll, when I'll allude to it on Twitter, I'll end up blocking people for the rest of the day because they think they're playing along and what they're doing is making homophobic comments that are not the point. I will point it out in the sense that, yes, that's an arranged marriage. As I said earlier, they were put back together by Wendy Dang Murdoch. And I could go into specifics about why I believe that, you know, not just what I got from my own gaydar, you know, which confirmed it as positive. But, you know, you know, he's a son of a billionaire. And, and when he was at NYU Law School, you know, he, he lived with his roommate in a dorm, his best friend, the same guy he put in charge of uh, the coronavirus task force, you know, 10 months ago. So, if your father owns real estate all over New York City, are you going to live in an NYU dorm? You know, I lived in NYU dorms when I was in school. If, if I had my choice between that and an apartment, I would have taken an apartment. But he lived in the dorm with his flatmate, who's his buddy. You know, and, and uh, we're getting into, uh, you know, I don't want to get into whatever it is, gossip. But in his orthodoxy, as a Jewish man, he couldn't be gay. Neither could his father, Right. So he has to have like a, a marriage and kids and, you know, those are his kids, but there's a lot of guys who step out on their wives who need to sort of be straight for purposes. So they're both like that, you know, they're into the money. There's no uh, love or attraction that was easily uh, recognizable between the two of them, but there's definitely a business understanding. And think of it, one more thing, they work together in the White House. 
Who wants to go to work with their wife or their husband every day? You know what I mean? Like that part is always weird to me. Like, okay, I'm going to be president and you and your husband are both going to work like right next door to me. You know, in a normal marriage, somebody would be pushing the other one out, you know? Like I got to see you at home all day. Now I got to see you at the office. What do you think the whole mask thing, the coronavirus denial, how do you think that relates to what we know about Donald Trump? Hundreds of thousands of people have died and millions have gotten very sick. Hospitals are overflowing. And yet these people, you know, it's like you put on those glasses from they live and you'll see these aliens. I mean, my take on it is Trump wants people to suffer. As I said before, he likes to break things. You know, it was Putin who put him in power, in my opinion. You know, he's not beholden to the people of the United States. He's beholden to himself. You know, my my overarching, you know, big view take on it is that Jared and, and, and Donald made a, a pact, sort of like, you're kind of going to destroy democracy, but you guys get to be the new oligarchs. You know, you're going to do what I said, and it's not going to be great for America, but you're going to come out on top, and your family will rule this place, you know, like a couple of czars or something. And and if you look at every foreign policy decision he's made, an economic decision, it weakens the U.S. and strengthens Russia, right? So he wants to break things. So something like having a deadly pandemic, you know, run through the populace doesn't bother him. It doesn't hurt his end game. You know, it doesn't affect his bottom line. And he was able to politicize it. That's what Trump does is he drives a wedge between people. You know, he was able to make it a red state, blue state thing. And you saw, you know, you heard Jared's quote that that Bob Woodward relayed and New York Times reported where he said, well, you know, Governor Cuomo didn't beg hard enough, so they're not going to get the PPP. You know, they didn't work hard. And, and they were like, Jared, you know, a million people could die. Well, tough, tough on them. You know, that's the kind of psychopathic thinking. You know, Jared was like, look, those are going to be Democrats that die. That's only going to help us in November. So there was that kind of pragmatic, cold-blooded political pragmatism. And then there was just the drama of like people suffering and Trump having the power of life and death over them gets him off. You know, that's his thing. Once he saw also that wearing masks and uh, social distancing was going to cut into his main ego feed, which was these rallies, he was anti-mask because it was used as a wedge to get people like those militias and in Michigan, if you remember, that went to the state house with their guns and stuff. And Trump was like, oh, they're fine people. They all like me, you know? So when, when he saw that sort of the morons that don't put on masks are, are friendly to him, he was all for not putting on a mask. As of today, and whenever this airs, over 43% of the American public think that this guy is doing a good job. I know. I know. I try to process that, and I can't come up with anything. I just keep going back to a conversation I had in summer of 2016 at the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, I was hanging out with a friend far away from my usual seat, and there was a woman there. And no matter what we said, and she was a black woman who denied she was black. I'm not black. I'm from Jamaica, <laughs> she said. Every time I spoke about Trump, her answer was, he's a businessman. He's a businessman. I mean, this is all the apprentice. This is all the lie. And yet, here we are four years later, and it hasn't changed. What's going on? 
It's it's a powerful thing, you know. Sinclair Broadcasting, Fox News, Clear Channel. A lot of these people are getting local news, which is mu- nothing more than kind of propaganda. You know, whether it's Russian propaganda, whether it's right wing propaganda, it has an effect. You know, it, it has an effect on people's psyche. And then you add Facebook onto that. You know, where people's timelines and feeds are just giving them what they want to know. They're just regurgitating things that are strengthening those beliefs. And by the way, that's that was Jared's role in the campaign. Jared was the one who he'd gone to Harvard and he talked to his buddies who were now out in Palo Alto and said, how do I micro-target people? You know, how do I find those guys in these swing states in Michigan and Pennsylvania that voted for Obama but also have an AR-15 and like to go deer hunting? They knew who they needed to get. And then Jared gave that information to the Russians and the Russians started targeting these guys, you know, with Cambridge Analytica and stuff and saying like, Hillary Clinton runs a pedophile ring in the bottom of a pizza joint. So one guy hears that, believes it, then tells his neck, his buddy the next day on the job site the same thing. And then that guy feels smart when he gets to tell somebody else about it. And all that stuff sort of uh, exponentially feeds on itself. And it, and, and once people identify with that way of thinking, and then somebody as charismatic as Trump is, and I don't say that in a complimentary way, but he has a charisma in front of an audience. You know, if you're a guy in Ohio and you've never met a famous person and all of a sudden the billionaire from the TV with the quote unquote supermodel wife is there in front of you talking just like you do, saying it's okay to have the same resentments you have and he's going to fix it, you know, and your life sucks because of some other guy, but he's going to go after those other people and you're the good people entitled to all this stuff. You're going to believe that. That stuff is very powerful, you know? So it was almost a perfect storm of those elements that has tribalized this country. And now we're at the point where 70 million people are not going to easily let go of that. It's it's the kind of re-education you need to do to cult members. You know, their whole their whole world is tied up in that thinking now to the point they're willing to die. I had a actual serious conversation with a trumper not long ago online. Every time I said, "Well, why do you like this guy?" He came back by how much he hated the Dems and the Libs. Right. It was kind of impossible to actually focus And when he did focus, he focused on a couple of things like cancel culture, stuff like that. Then it turned out that he disagrees with Trump about the climate. He disagrees with Trump about this, about that. And I was like, is this 70 million people? (laughs) Exactly. And maybe it is. It is. Maybe it is. Yeah. One thing I would like to point out is that instead of saying Russia, we should talk about the world oligarchs, because I don't think... It's Russia per se. I think it's a group of people all over the world who have billions of dollars and they meet all the time and they talk all the time. And I don't think it's a secret. Uh, Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think you're right. You know, it's just as much the Mercers and the Koch brothers as it is anybody with a last name that's hard for us to say on the other side of the world. You're right. It's it's the ruling class. You know, it's the same thing that uh, Howard Zinn would talk about in the People's History of the United States. You know, it's a lot easier to get the workers, so to speak, to resent someone else. You know, it was easy to get the indentured servants to resent the slaves. That was more convenient than realizing the guy who owned the farm was the one who was really screwing you over. You know, it's the same way now, you know. 
two questions. Uh, the first is, will Trump ever be broken? Will the air come out of that balloon? That's the first question. And let's say it doesn't and he dies because he's overweight, he takes drugs, he's not in great shape. Does Trumpism completely deflate at that point? I don't believe so. I think we're stuck with this for a generation at least. And what I fear most is the kids that are growing up at this time, the kids that are 11 years old now and living in these red state homes, you know, with these MAGA people. I'm worried about what they're going to be like when they turn 18 and 21, not just in terms of voting, but in terms of how they feel coming up at a society where they've been told that the Democrats or the libtards or the other are their enemies. And that's what Trump has fed them for four years. That doesn't die out quickly. You know, the Civil War ended in 1865, right? And it wasn't until 1965 that they, you know, gave blacks the right to vote in the South and they still had to fight for it, you know? So the kind of thing that he's unleashed is going to be generational and his son will take over. You know, it's the next battle we see in Trump land will be between Ivanka and Don Jr. Uh, to see who carries on the throne, so to speak. And my money would be on Ivanka because <laughs> she's ruthless, <laughs> even though Don Jr. clearly talks the talk. You know, he'll be more cop popular with the, you know, Bass Pro Shop Ford F-150 crowd, but he's got his own issues with drugs and stuff, as you can well see. So Ivanka will win that battle. I don't think they'll ever be back and an executive capacity in this country. But, you know, look how many uh, QAnon folks just got elected to Congress this past election. So that kind of thing, we're, we're living with it for a long time, sad to say. Noel Kassler, at your end, what's up for you? Uh, obviously, you can't get back on sta stand up until, you know, we all get back into the real world and theaters reopen, which is, by the way, something no one talks about. I know. Which is the destruction of live theater. Exactly. What's up for you? Have you started writing that? Book? I have. I've begun writing. You know, I'm doing the Twitter stuff. I enjoy uh, the storytelling because I have a lot of other stories that don't have to do with Trump. You know, I've worked with some amazing artists. I was a road manager and tour manager for Crosby, Stills and Nash and Jackson Brown and you know, I've worked with the Rolling Stones and Bruce Springsteen and Pete Seeger and all kinds of cool people that helped shape my views in, in, in the arts and in progressive politics. And, and like you said, there's been a real vacuum. You know, I, I, I have a theater background. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. You know, a year without theater is like having a garden go a year without sunlight. You know, the arts play a vital role in our humanity you know, as a people. And that's the other reason we've been suffering, I think, so much. So I myself won't be back on stage until it's completely safe to do so. That's at least a year away, you know, with the vaccines and everything. I wouldn't ask anybody to get in a crowd and come see me. It's not worth risking your life for. So I hope everyone else does the same thing, you know, waits until it's safe. But I'm exploring other options. You know, I'd like to do some sort of radio thing myself. As you hear, I got a lot of tangents to go off on, you know? So I, I apologize sometimes with a host. It's hard to keep me on topic. So maybe I'll explore avenues where I can do my own talking for an hour or so and just talk about whatever sort of moves me in that day's headlines and see, see how it relates to some experiences I've had. You've been listening to an interview with Noel Kassler. Uh, what is your Twitter feed if people want to listen in? It's Noel Kassler Comedy. And the handle is at Kassler Knoll. That's C-A-S-L-E-R-N-O-E-L. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. 
You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>